Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. From an intricate knowledge of regulatory alignment versus regulatory equivalence, to the difference between the customs union and a customs union, everyone interested in British politics suddenly has very strong views on the technical details of trade policy. But while most of us have been hurriedly scrubbing up on all things trade, for others, this is their bread and butter. Ali Renison is head of trade policy at the Institute of Directors and is one of the ones who actually knows what she's talking about on this all-important subject. When it comes to Britain's future trading relationship with the EU, Ali is an advocate of a partial customs union that would minimise the impact of our departure on manufacturing firms embedded in European supply chains, while giving the UK the freedom to forge its own trade policy and seek free trade deals with other countries in areas not covered by its deal with Europe. I met Ali at the IOD to talk about Britain's options in its negotiation with Europe, the pros and cons of her proposal, what Trump really thinks about trade, and, more generally, the health of free trade around the world. Ali Rennison, you're a trade expert. Before we talk about um, the ins and outs of the Brexit negotiations and so on, can I ask what it's like to be a trade expert at the moment? Um, A subject which no one was hugely interested in a few years ago, and suddenly everyone everyone in Britain claims to be an expert on it. So what's it like as someone who actually does know what they're talking about? Uh, for the benefit of the audience, I am cringing <laughs> while you say that. Um, I don't know if people sort of trade as an expert is in, in hot demand at the moment or particularly popular. But um, so it's interesting. There were uh, a handful of people, um, uh, a lot of them probably sort of academics locked away in um, uh, various universities doing trade policy who now are starting to get a look in. But um, from my end, we were looking at uh, TTIP particularly and EU trade agreements before the referendum. So that's where the sort of, I think, interest in all this started um, from the IOD's perspective, we could see that uh, right from the get-go, particularly because it was the U.S. that that a trade agreement um, with the EU and the U.S. was in trouble. So we really wanted to focus on trying to explain what it was all about. Um, And now you're sort of, it's a bit of a twofold exercise. You're trying to, um, uh, on the one hand, sort of uh, talk about trade policy um, uh, in isolation about what the U.K. could or couldn't do and, and, and how it sort of could bring a good contribution to the debate. But at the same time, it's it's not a debate in isolation because you have to have that, what is what is the trade-off cost in terms of our actual trade with the 
you know, our largest single market. So mm -hmm. it's a bit of a sort of strange debate because you want to have these discussions about, you know, how could the UK forge a really good independent trade policy on its own in the world? And yet at the same time, you're kind of squaring that, well, well does the full extent of um, uh, freedom mean that it comes at an actual cost that you don't really normally talk about when you're talking about trade agreements? So it's a bit of a, it, it's, it's, Educational, um, uh, you're educating, but you're also learning because you've never been in a situation before where talk about trade is also um, uh, running alongside a discussion about how to unwind it potentially mm -hmm. with your with your largest market. And I think another interesting thing about the trade, the debate over this, uh, at least in Britain, is there's a there's kind of two conversations. One is the pra the the practical what should what option should Britain go for, and what what will it get from the EU, and so on. And then there's a sort of second debate, which is a philosophical one about how trade policy should be conducted and why, whether or not massive trade deals are, a, are mm. always a good idea or, or not. And the problem is those two things kind of get muddled in together. Yeah. So there, there are lots of valid arguments about um, we, two countries don't necessarily have to say, you know, have complete regulatory alignment to, in order to be able to trade freely. The problem is that's not like the world we live in, right? Mm. So from a sort of Brexiteer point of view, the challenge is to kind of think practically as well as philosophically about these things. So, so you, you published a, um, at the IOD, you published a, your proposal for something you think that kind of best, uh, not squares the circle, but is the best compromise between... Squares part of the circle. <laughs> the, the best compromise between the kind of, um, let's just stay as close as possible to the EU without staying in the EU and let's go and be buccaneering global Britain. And so, so maybe if you could just kind of lay out the, the proposal. Sure. Um, so I think one of the things that we were keen to try and explain um, amongst other reasons for doing this paper and putting out the proposal was there's been this kind of uh, debate that hasn't really been a debate because it's been about you know whether we should leave the EU's customs union and to me that was almost irrelevant because you know uh, this may be an overly legalistic view when you leave the EU you leave its treaties the EU's customs union is technically only open to member states the EU can't negotiate for non-member states so um, it really wasn't a debate about whether we should leave the customs union I know people said this was a semantical sort of mm -hmm. you know about the indefinite article but to me it was very important to explain that this actually is a Customs union this is a custom, custom union, union and um, a partial one, not not a sort of a completely comprehensive one. And I'll come back to in a minute why that actually um, in the broader framework would be compatible with WTO law. But we wanted to explain that actually even if the UK was in some form of new customs union, it would still be able to have an independent trade policy. It would still be able to negotiate trade agreements because you've heard the government and the PM talk a lot about not being in the customs union in order to be able to strike one's own trade agreements. That's almost inevitable, no matter how the UK leaves the EU. Um, uh, but we wanted to explain that just the, the question of a customs union wasn't the bogeyman that I think people made it out to be. And there were some very practical reasons why it would be good for business to have some form of it continuing, particularly in manufacturing, because um, people aren't used to dealing with proving the origin of their goods, which is what has to happen if you move from a customs union mm -hmm. to a total free free trade agreement in uh, uh, only. And that, um, sorry, just to explain that, that, that's because otherwise people can just pull off this arbitrage where they import something to Britain, sorry, something to Europe via Britain to just exploit it. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the backdoor issue that, that the EU and quite frankly any other country would have an issue with. Um, it's interesting to look at 
the NAFTA renegotiation going on between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And um, this is part of the, the Trump administration's raison d'etre. They want to use rules of origin to make it much harder um, for companies who may not be set up in Mexico or maybe not set up in Canada to access the U.S. market under NAFTA. So they want to create some very tough, restrictive um, rules of origin that would basically also protect uh, U.S. producers. The ironic thing actually is, is that because of the impact that would have on, on uh, integrated supply chains across those different markets, a lot of the U.S. Um, auto producers don't actually want that because they rely on that sort of supply chain. And that's why it's particularly relevant for the U.K. because the U.K. right now is particularly from a manufacturing standpoint, is sort of a, a, an important ch- um, a sort of a chink in the armor of supply chains uh, running across Europe, particularly with respect to automotive supply chains, manufacturing, chemicals, pharmaceuticals. Um, and so if you start to apply rules of origin to that trade, it really makes the UK a far less appealing destination, particularly for third country firms like Toyota, Honda, mm-hmm. Nissan, etc., to want to have to um, uh, stick future sort of investment decisions in the UK when they know they're going to be having to prove the origin um, every time the sort of good goes across the border. And and the reason that's particularly important is because you don't just build a car in Britain and then send it to France. You send parts and bits backwards and forwards and so it's it, so it's not just a car crossing a border once. It's, no, it's things crossing the border it's, many it's times. Multiple times, and also you know, unlike I think with um, financial services, where there is a genuine argument to say, um, no, a lot of these companies from the U.S. from Japan are not simply here because of the U.K.'s participation in the single market and the customs union. Um, you know, the financial uh, center of London as a big um, uh, global hub is important no matter how and what happens when we leave the EU. But with respect to manufacturing. Manufacturing, the picture is a little bit more complicated, actually, for physical movement of goods. Um, the UK having uh, untrammeled access and no barriers to trade with the EU is particularly important when you're moving parts that quickly um, and that often across borders. And so it's a partial customs union with um, industri- the focus being on industrial goods Mainly industrial and goods agri- and processed agricultural yeah. good, goods. So, so the idea is, and, and um, uh, in terms of the scope uh, and the precedent, that's why we looked at the Turkish arrangement was to say, just in terms of what it covers, this is this does have a precedent. Um, uh, rules of origin um, would still probably apply under this scenario to most um, uh, uh, agricultural goods, but it's not as much of an issue because you don't have... Um, perishable goods, as many perishable goods coming from huge distances crossing the border so many times yep. like you do with component parts in, mm-hmm. a, in a supply chain for manufacturing. So it's less existential of an issue for, for agri-food than it is for um, uh, manufacturing. So this is predominantly covering all industrial goods um, and some uh, limited processed agri-food items, and um, that would be up for a negotiation. But it would mean the UK has uh, basically total control over all sort of um, uh, agri-food tariffs. And just to dive into one practical dimension of this does that what does this mean for the worries about you know queues of lorries at at um at dover and and calais and those kind of more you know britain hasn't really beefed up its mm. customs um force and all those things i mean does this to what extent does this proposal solve those issues? It's part of the puzzle. I think we, we've been pretty clear that this is specifically <clears throat> aimed at dealing with the question um, of rules of origin because one of the things that we found was that actually some of the impact studies looking at whether um, Turkey should actually move back to just an FTA with the EU um, uh, saw that basically the, the, the conclusion was that actually the 
what they call the rules of origin shock would be so significant and deter investment in Turkey as a sort of uh, industrial hub for European supply chains that it would outweigh any of the benefits from a wider FTA. Um, so that's why we were particularly looking at this. It does not solve the problem of um, how you get frictionless trade. It's part of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things would need to be complementing it, and that's why we say that this is part of this would be part of a wider bilateral preferential trade framework. So um, you know uh, the FTA that would sort of, uh, um, I think, sort of be the umbrella package around the wide, the sort of specific customs union um, would sort of cover agriculture in um, in a primary sense. It would cover um, financial services, most other services, IP, all the other things that would have to go into um, a new trade arrangement anyways. Um, and also, you know, it's important to note that I think the ability to continue with as frictionless trade as possible, to use the government's um, sometimes shifting uh, approach to what the language is, um, it's going to be a mix of uh, some policy alignment in certain key areas and then technical and technological solutions. Um, But a lot of that can't actually take place until you know what the outline of the trade arrangement is first. And just to go back to the sort of foundational bit of all of this, what actually is the difference between a customs union and the customs union? Because... you pointed out that there is a legal significance mm. to the fact that we have to leave the customs mm. union, but but what does that actually mean? Um, I mean, for for the purposes of, of trade policy, effectively, if you're in the customs union, you cannot negotiate your own trade agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's why predominantly it's kind of only open to EU members. Um, a customs union has a little bit more. It's still pretty black and white in terms of what underpins it. You are having a common external tariff in X number of areas, but it's not necessarily um, accompanied by a common trade policy. So if you look at some other examples um, uh, in Mercosur and South America, America, for example, um, it's sort of a badly functioning customs union um, uh, where, you know, sometimes they don't negotiate as a block, sometimes they negotiate individually, um, uh, and then also sometimes they actually have restrictions against each other. Um, so there are different sort of ways in which customs union can function, but the main difference is, is that if you're in the EU's customs union, you are effectively having your trade policy totally outsourced to the EU. Mm-hmm. But I guess if, if, if you were to... Um attack your proposal from a kind of Remainer point or, or a Brussels point of view, one of the criticisms, this, this sort of sounds awfully like a sort of have your cake and eat it arrangement mm-hmm. um, where Britain doesn't sacrifice its trade with Europe to a very great extent, but it also gets the freedom it wants and so on. So what's the, what's the comeback to that? I think the, the, the instinctive comeback to that is that it, you know, the EU is talking a lot about you know, options and models and precedents, and it has one. You know, the, the Turkish arrangement is something that is a partial customs union with a wider, basically, bilateral preferential trade framework. Um, uh, and, you know, they are actually looking at upgrading it, which includes extending it, but simply because both sides want to extend it to agriculture with a, with a wider FTA. Um, so, you know, and, and this was done, you know, um, uh, the WTO was set up in 95. The, this was sort of put in place um, and implemented in 96. So it's not necessarily, you know, an issue of being compatible with WTO law, WTO law either. Um, so, but I think the main argument, counter argument in terms of if the EU sort of were to raise an eyebrow is quite frankly, um, this is one of its arrangements with a major uh, mm-hmm. country outside of the EU as well. And the response to that would probably be, it's not a view I have, but the response to that would probably be, well, Turkey's arrangement was supposed to be part of Turkey's eventually joining the EU or at least both politically and economically getting closer and closer to the EU. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the EU case for this arrangement is, is, 
isn't quite the same when it's when it's the opposite, when it's someone going in the other direction. So I think one of the interesting things that would slightly counter argue, counter sort of a, provide a counter argument to that is actually. Um, uh, uh, the fact that initially, the, the you know, there have been several um, agreements between the EU and Turkey. There was an association agreement, then there was a customs union deal, and then there was um, uh, various sort of preferential trade, I wouldn't call them agreements, but sort of preferences that were extended. Um, and initially, I think this was part of, you know, Turkey's path to accession. But actually now, they have completely separated it. They have, um, both, both sides have agreed, particularly Turkey, um, to stress that this is uh, an economic exercise and that basically accession is off the table for the time being. So um, in all actual fact, the way that this trajectory is going is um, this is a basically permanent situation for Turkey for the foreseeable future. Right. And then just on the constraints this would leave, um, just to continue sort of explaining it, the constraints this would leave Britain on two fronts. Firstly, what does that mean for domestic regulations in the areas we've got the partial customs union with Europe? And secondly, what does it mean in terms of our freedom to strike, are there any constraints on our freedom to strike deals with other countries? So I think on the regulatory aspect, I mean, obviously a, a customs union is predominantly about um, uh, sharing a common external tariff for the areas that are covered. That's that's the main defining feature of a customs union. Turkey is, if you look at the agreement it has with the EU, in theory, supposed to align itself to some of the areas of the EU's common commercial policy on technical legislation, but in effect that doesn't happen um, uh, in practice. And also, that doesn't necessarily impinge on their ability to to do trade agreements with third countries. Where the constraint comes in is actually, um, and this is where I think the UK and Turkey are pr in pretty different starting positions, is because it covers predominantly all industrial um, uh, goods, industrial tariffs, it means that if the EU is doing a trade agreement with a third country, Turkey, if it doesn't want to, will feel the need to do something in parallel um, to try and get reciprocal access for its exporters on, um, you know, to, to industrial goods markets in third countries. Now, it's important important to note that actually, um, with a couple of notable exceptions, maybe in cars, for example, um, uh, as a finished good, uh, industrial tariffs are pretty low around the world, particularly with the EU. So they're, they're not, I wouldn't say they're a huge lever in negotiations um, with respect to tariffs and the way that agricultural and agri-food tariffs are. And part of the issue, I think, that has arisen with Turkey, ironically, is the fact that the EU has become so ambitious with its trade policy agenda. It yeah. wants to do deals um, with a huge amount of countries. So Turkey feels the need to sort of make sure it's doing them alongside or shortly after afterwards. And this is where I think it puts it in a pretty different starting point to the UK. The difference between the UK and Turkey is that the UK wants this very wide, ambitious agenda and has broadly actually a lot of the same trade priorities in terms of markets as the EU. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Japan, South Korea, Singapore. Um, uh, it's doing huge amounts with, with the African continent at the moment as well. Um, negotiations were stalled with India, but that's actually more a reflection of where the Indian government is right now as a whole. It doesn't have many trade agreements at all with third countries. Turkey, by contrast, um, has a very different set of priorities. Uh, it, it's quite a protectionist country. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the top 10 users of anti-dumping sort of uh, uh, measures. So it doesn't have the same kind of priorities as the EU in the way that the UK would for a trade policy agenda. So it's so kind of... a nice overlapping sort there's, of... There's quite an... And, and you see this actually, even if the UK wasn't in a customs union, um, and I think this is where you need an actual practical debate about where does alignment suit and where doesn't it? Because there is this issue of trade deflection and trade diversion, which is the reason why you have, even though they're not in a customs union, the the 
EFTA member states, um, you know, Switzerland, Norway, Iceland, Liechtenstein, um, they actually tend to broadly uh, follow, um, with a couple of exceptions, uh, the EU's trade sort of uh, priorities and do their own deals similarly alongside or shortly afterwards because there's a competitive advantage and a sort of trade diversion question there. So it's, you know, I, I don't want this sort of question about... Um, uh, control necessarily to sort of stop people from realizing that actually in some areas there is a genuine economic interest in the UK trying to keep pace where it can with you and then also going off and doing it its other its own ones so one of the one of the few countries that you know for example when the EU um, uh, was trying to get third countries to do parallel deals with Turkey most of the countries were fine with doing it there were a couple of notable examples namely the US um, now it has to be said that particularly from a Western developed sort of um, uh, uh, democracy point of view, Turkey has um, priorities that are not necessarily in line it's from a foreign policy yeah. and security um, uh, uh, standpoint. So the U.S. did not particularly want to do a trade deal with Turkey. It's mm -hmm. not in its political priorities. And trade at the end of the day is about political priorities, geopolitical priorities. The UK is in a very different starting point. You know, the US, the US, ironically, I mean, you might ask, well, why does the US and the UK want to do a trade agreement anyways, because they're so deeply integrated um, as, as from a third country standpoint, what, what, would it, what benefits would it actually bring? Well, a lot of that is political, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's one way that the current administration in the White House is trying to say that it is being outward looking, is the UK is the one sort of exception to its um, backing away from tr the trade liberalization agenda. So, you know, the UK is in such a different starting point. It's not, I don't see the same issues with Turkey in respect of third countries not necessarily wanting to do deals in parallel to shortly after with before the EU. But you asked about the constraint. The one constraint is, is that you don't have that sort of uh, full control over industrial tariffs. Um, uh, again, it's not as big of an issue in a, in a wider, when you look at an FTA, there are 12, 13, 14 chapters, mm -hmm. um, and only sort of, you know, uh, one of them really focuses on tariffs. Mm -hmm. And within that, the big ticket ones are the agri-food items, right. quite frankly. Right. And so that's the, that would be the main kind of Brexiteer objection to your proposal would be this issue of not absolute, complete yeah. control over, over that trade, that element of, of trade policy. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But, but, but does this, do you think your proposal, does it cunningly avoid all of the red lines that the government has sort of set up for itself? I mean, for example, if there was a row over over our relation, our, you know, if, if, if in this arrangement Britain and the EU disagreed about something, I mean, what's the recourse to deal with that? Was that does the ECJ ever get involved? Or So technically the ECJ has an, I mean, and again, this is where when I talk about the Turkish arrangement, I'm just talking about having a precedent on a partial customs union in terms of scope and coverage. I think a deal with the EU is going to be very different um, in terms of what's added on or what's not added on, quite frankly. Um, there is an indirect role for the ECJ, but it's, I think, the one of the few ways in which um, it's there. you ever had cases really referred to it was actually um, in watching evidence being given to the House of Commons uh, International, uh, sorry, Brexit Committee this week. You had someone from a Turkish university saying, actually, the argument was about whether um, uh, the EU is quite restrictive on road transport quotas for Turkish drivers crossing the border, which we wouldn't quite have the same same issue with in terms right. of geographical positioning. They drive, we don't have a lot of UK drivers driving throughout Europe, whereas a lot of Turkish drivers do tend to come through Eastern Europe um, or wanting to deliver their goods. And there are pretty restrictive quotas, member state by member state, on their ability to do that. So effectively, that case was taken through a Turkish EU company um, uh, was taken to the ECJ, um, mainly to try and force the EU into um, allowing, uh, sort of uh, facilitating um, Turkish drivers to come into the EU. So you could see that there's a theoretically indirect role. Um, But then again, when we look at what the PM said last weekend at her security treaty um, uh, speech, she was quite clear that, you know, this is where she tries to distinguish, I think, between direct effect and indirect effect. She's effectively saying that, you know, even technically Switzerland um, theoretically, indirectly, ha- it, you know, is subservient to the ECJ because it participates in some EU agencies where the ECJ has a remit. But realistically, there aren't many cases that ever go to the ECJ relating to participation in European regulatory agencies, quite mm-hmm. frankly. Um, so I don't think the ECJ is a particularly big issue here. And it does seem to me, on a, just on a, more broadly, actually, if if you're going to have, a, if you're the government, and you're going to have a fight with the hard Brexiteers. If you, if you have it over ECJ jurisdiction, that makes your life a hell of a lot easier in, in lots of respects. But I'm not sure um, Jacob Rees-Mogg sees it that way. Yeah. Um, let's talk about. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the U.S. government. Let's talk not necessarily just about their trade deal with Britain, but in general, how do you read the Trump administration on trade? I mean, it's an interesting question. I think whether. The, the bite is as bad as the bark on mm. on protectionism. I, I think the jury's still out. I don't know. I, I think the jury's still out. I think it, it may ramp up this year. We may see further evidence of more. Um, uh, there's been, there was a lot of noise last year, you know, just like, just as there was noise during the election about, you know, having, um, you know, a blanket import tariff on, you know, I don't, I don't know if the, president realized that you can't just put an import tariff on uh, um, uh, Chinese goods because that that violates the discrimination, the non-discrimination principle of the WTO. You can do it if you think there's been dumping. So effectively, I think what you're starting to see a little bit more of, but was really always the case with the U.S. government, is they take a very robust approach to anti-dumping measures as a way of restricting 
um, uh, imports in. Um, uh, it, the, I would say this sort of the, the the calculation in which you sort of make for how someone has dumped your products unfairly at subsidized rates is not the most straightforward, transparent process, particularly also when you're trying to look at a country like China whose books aren't particularly open. And I think that's why you actually see other countries, the G20, for example, Japan, um, really trying to push the China to be more transparent to allow for that, you know, um, uh, easier ability to sort of figure out whether this stuff is dumping or not. But effectively, what you're seeing in the U.S. right now is um, a slight uptick in what's always happened before. Yeah. I think the main difference, which is harder to quantify the impact of, is um, before the current administration uh, an outward-looking trade liberalization agenda was as much part of the uh, U.S. government's priorities as protecting um, jobs from, you know, uh, dumped imports. Mm -hmm. Now you see a lot less of that. Um, yes, NAFTA is being renegotiated, but it's not really necessarily through the lens of – the government's not going out and trying to pursue new trade agreements, quite frankly. It's trying to, um, ex you know, extract max benefit from renegotiating existing ones. And I think the one – uh, exception to that has been the UK, but quite frankly, they are, we're not even at a scoping stage yet. And, and I think the danger for Britain, if it puts too many eggs in the in the American basket, is I mean, you, I can't imagine the Trump administration. You can see why ideologically the Trump administration is keen on trade deal with Brexit Britain. As you said, it makes it it's a convenient thing also for them to be able to say we're not anti-trade. We, we'd like to do a deal with Britain, but whenever there's any. Whenever, the, if we got to those negotiations, it's hard to see any concessions, meaningful concessions, or any sort of way in which Trump, the Trump administration, would do anything that kind of could be seen that as undermining American workers in any particular industry. I think, or, I think it depends on the area of the negotiations. So um, one of the ways in which it could actually be different in a, in a positive sense from the previous administration was the U.S. Treasury was dead set against having any really meaningful discussion on um, financial services in a regulatory sense with the EU. You know, the EU and the U.K. were really pushing for it, which is not to... Not to say I have to stress the same thing as saying the EU saying, you know, um, you know, give us access to your market and we'll give it to yours. And basically, then you won't have to have a physical presence. You can just it, it, they weren't trying to extend the single market yep. financial services to the U.S., but they were trying to talk about um, uh, closer regulatory cooperation. And the U.S. Treasury was absolutely dead set against because Dodd-Frank had just basically come into effect a few years before. And some people thought that that meant unwinding it. Um now, uh, Dodd-Frank is being looked at anyways by the current administration. So there is the potential, I think, for um, uh, looking at this more closely between the UK and the US. It might not necessarily have to wait for a trade agreement to do that, mind you. Um, you know, I think that there are certain areas that may not actually best be addressed under a trade agreement where the UK and the US could start making headway now instead of waiting for that, because it, they may be waiting some time. Um, where I think it becomes more of an issue is naturally in sort of agri-food regulations, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and there I think, I mean, it's important. This is the kind of like chlorinated, chlorinated chicken. Chlorinated chicken, you know, hormone beef ban, et cetera. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see whether once the UK is out of the EU and um, on the assumption, I think that it will probably in the near term continue with that kind of ban specifically, whether the U.S. pursues a case against the U.K. for it. Now, I think it was more of an issue when the EU had this ban because it was such a massive market mm. that it was it was a barrier to a huge potential market for U.S. farmers and agriculture. There are other smaller countries that actually have the same bans, but the U.S. doesn't pursue cases against them. Um, now, that's a particularly big issue for the border in Northern Ireland. And, and it was interesting to see 
one of the few areas before this whole question of alignment even really got going when the government put out its position paper last year in the summer about um, how to deal with the border in Northern Ireland. They unprompted raised the issue of needing to have, at a minimum, equivalence in agri-food regulations for that border. Mm -hmm. You know, you heard um, Karen Bradley, the new NI Secretary of State, say a couple weeks ago, we can't have different regulations on different sides of the field, quite frankly. Um, You know, and this is where you start... You do ask questions about, well, can you, I, th- I think in certain areas you can have equivalent outcomes, um, you know, in terms of how you define alignment, even if it's not to the letter. In technical areas, um, uh, you know, sort of regulation of cars, for example, um, uh, all these sort of technical standards. I think on um, agri-food regulations it's a lot more difficult because technically both the U.S. and the EU think they have very high standards, but they also have a very long-running trade dispute, um, you know, over the sort of the, the hormone ban. So, you know, I don't think the UK can realistically argue to the EU that if it decides to, you know, um, uh, move away from that kind of ban, that it has equivalent regulations. Mm-hmm. There, That's mm-hmm. a pretty fundamental difference. Now, I don't think, you know, I think it's important to stress that the UK doesn't have to put everything on the table. Um, yes, the US is a um, big bad bully, as some people put it, you know, in, in trade negotiations, it knows how to get what it wants. But that doesn't mean that the UK has to concede on everything. It just may mean that some of the concessions that the UK wants from the US may not be as extensive. It's more about the scope of the deal rather yeah. than but the, there are, the, the, the balance of it. Yeah, but there are a lot of areas that I think people don't realize well beyond tariffs, well beyond even just sort of what we call SPS, agri-food regulation issues, that you talk about um, you know, intellectual property, for example, which... If you talk to really sort of free trade purists, they don't think should be in a trade agreement mm-hmm. because that's corporate rent seeking yep. um, as far as they're concerned. I have some sympathy with it. Uh, and, and it's interesting, but this is an example of, you know, um, right now we're only looking at trade policy in the UK through the lens of more, 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 and not, you know, actually in the US there are some big dividing lines within the right about how to approach trade agreements. Should you have investor state dispute settlement? Should you have IP included? And the libertarian right are absolutely dead set against that. Um, I think the debate is maturing in the UK, so we haven't quite reached those kind of cleavages yet. Well, that's sort of touched on what I was saying earlier about there's this other question, which is, I would say, more interesting but less important at the moment about what trade deals are for ultimately mm-hmm. and 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 what is the proper scope of them as you said earlier the uh, i think you said that you know the, a trade deal might have 14 chapters one of which is about tariffs whereas i think in the, if you ask the average person on the street on the street what do trade deals do they would say they get rid of they would get rid of tariffs basically is mm-hmm. um that's what they do so do you, what's your on that debate that goes on in America and and I guess globally? Do you think there's any kind of movement there, or I mean, any movement away from the very bureaucratic kind of legalistic status quo at the moment, the sort of EU vision of trade deals? I think the interesting thing about TTIP was both sides talked about it, not least because it covered a huge amount of trade, but it was about standard setting. Mm-hmm. And that's also where some people on the right have big issues with it. That's not necessarily what they think the function of trade agreement should be. Because then we can't have our Mad Max Fury Road. Um, um, it's about it's about setting um, uh, minimum requirements that you then can't um, uh, go back on, basically. Um, and that's really what the WTO was supposed to be for, was trying to set out some basic frameworks for, rule, for non-discrimination. Mm-hmm. That's what... Is supposed to underpin, particularly when you get away from tariff issues, trade agreements, is this principle of um, uh, making sure that you treat everyone the same as much as possible, service suppliers, good suppliers, etc. But the, what, what it has 
turned into is, you know, and I think this is also a legitimate question for not just for big companies to say this, but, you know, if you look at the chemical sector or the pharmaceutical sector, from large to small, they, broadly speaking, actually, certainly in, in, the, in the, you know, thinking about it with your Brexit hat on, they like having one set of rules for technical regulations because it, it really is just, mm-hmm. you know, less paperwork. And there are some sectors where you don't have what I would call normative rules. They are just about technical standards. Um, whereas when you start getting into agri-food regulations, you do start getting into what is um, what is a precautionary principle, mm-hmm. what should it be used for, how should you regulate. So you do start getting to get into some really tricky issues. And I think that's something that the UK should think about anyways. Does it really, the UK and the US right now on certain areas, yes, you could argue I suppose that it's because of EU membership. We don't know how different we would be outside or if we'd never been in the EU. There are some pretty big differences in terms Mm -hmm. of how we approach things compared to the the US. And that's simply just how things have evolved over time. So it might not be a good idea to actually want to try and tackle things where the starting points are so vastly different. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't necessarily want to try and change the way that food is regulated in a trade agreement without having that discussion domestically first. And just on that point, I'm right thinking that in the WTO's eyes, uh, the EU's ban on GMO food, for instance, or produce is is an act of protectionism. Basically, mm. they they lost. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's very. I, mean, that, that just, I just that seems like a good example to me of how, from a, you know, what a, a country should be allowed to decide if it wants to sell GMO mm. food or not, and why is you know. There's another good example of this. There's been a, a big push to, um, uh, you know, once we leave the EU, we can ban the um, uh, live transport of animals for slaughter. Um, and I think what people don't realize about that is that's not simply, that's actually the EU being its most trade-oriented, quite frankly. And the issue there is actually one that you would face at the WTO if you tried to ban um, because the thing is, you know, uh, movement goes two ways. So you can ban it, but if someone wants to import it, they yep. may have different views about yep. it, quite frankly. Um, so actually, there are lots of different areas where we think that, you know, um, we can do these things once we're out of the EU, when in fact, um, a lot of what WTO rules lay down for, um, and they don't necessarily regulate, just, they just allow cases to be brought very frequently, mm-hmm. um, using the WTO rulebook as a basis for saying that violates um, the non-discrimination clause. Um, uh, effectively. So um, I think that we're going to learn very quickly that even outside of the EU, um, a lot of these issues are about fundamental um, uh, rule books that that were established long before the EU Mm -hmm. came into existence. And let's have a final um, broad question about trade, which is you could could make a very convincing case, uh, let's say a year ago, that um, Donald Trump's just been elected president, uh, Brexit, at least an element of the Brexit vote was a kind of, if not explicitly protectionist, then turning its back on the, uh, t- mm-hmm. turning your back on, you know, inward facing kind of decision. WTO talks are kind of on ice uh, and you could paint a pretty bleak picture of, um, of trade, the, the health of sort of trade globally. How do you feel about the answer to that question now? I mean, do you think things are sort of looking up a bit or... Uh, it depends on which vantage point you're looking at it from. From the UK's standpoint, and I think it was always um, really misunderstood, but unsurprisingly, it's very easy to put Trump and Brexit in the same category mm-hmm. if you're not from, I don't, if you're I not from here. I don't think there's much more nuance. Yeah. I'm just saying yeah. the argument but, was made. But, but, I, but I think sort of so, I think <laughs> the difference now between the UK and the US is that um, the rest of the world is, you know, 
there was quite a bit of shock in sort of global elite circles about the Brexit vote and a lot of misunderstanding about what it was about. Um, I think that they're starting to understand that actually there is a big contingent politically of people who see Brexit as being about being much more open looking. I think people are starting to understand that globally now, whereas the U.S. is still a bit, I think, stuck in election sort of territory where this is still very much about, you know, potential trade wars. So I think the U.S., the U.K. is, and the further it gets down the Brexit process, you know, even though it's going to be pretty bumpy for a couple of years, I think people will start to realize how different those two things were. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.